Well, good morning. Glad to have you here this morning. I hope that you've kind of entered the new year, a new plan, a new way, Uh, but an old guy. You know, the last few weeks we've had this newness going on, and then we bring up a guy who's been around here for 24 years. What's up with that? I I don't get it. I don't get it. But anyway, the old guy's here, and uh, that's what we're doing this morning. And we're going to be talking about the new way that Jesus introduced But I want to start with a little bit of an illustration, because the other night at our house, because we had my daughter visiting from Massachusetts, and she has an interest in some Massachusetts high school basketball for some reason, and uh, as a result, we had a bunch in our living room watching this Massachusetts high school basketball game. And uh, as we were there, two of my pre-adolescent grandsons, who were not quite as intrigued with the game, decided to play a ball game. So the, no, uh, let's start with the other one first. There we go. And so they got out this thing. Now, what is this? Anybody? Okay. Well, it's a football. What are you talking about? This is a football, okay? So they got out this ball, and anyway, it's nice and round, you know, and it kind of, and the rules were kind of constricted in the room. You know, there was no, we didn't want any air under the ball, We just wanted it rolling back and forth, and so it was rolling, and they got kind of bored with that. Uh, So instead, they switched and went to this one, because this, when you roll it on the ground, creates a little more excitement about where it's going to end up and more opportunity to dive and get physical and stuff like that. And so, but as they were doing that, I'm thinking, what if, okay, you played football in the United States, like this afternoon, If you went to the Bills Stadium, and instead of having one of these, they had one of these. Can you imagine Josh Allen trying to throw this thing 56 yards on his back foot? It's not going to happen. It's going to go all over. He's not going to be able to thread the needle with that nice tight spiral. What's going to happen? Chaos! And you know something? Jesus' new plan was more chaotic than if they had introduced an international football into American football. It was completely out of their minds. They had no conception of what Jesus was talking about. And what Cooper's been telling us for the last few weeks is that there were things that should have been expected. In other words, he fit the genealogy. He could prove. They could go to the temple And they could check out the genealogical records, and they would know for certain that what Matthew wrote there was a fact, that he was descended from David. And therefore, he was physically, he was qualified to be the Messiah. But he had some strange things going on, too, like his cousin, his front man, eating bugs, hanging out with goat hair all over him, in the wilderness, everybody thinking he's totally weird. That's your front man? They weren't expecting that. And then he goes to gather his followers. And what does he choose? Four commercial fishermen. Go to Boston, where the com- commercial fishermen are, and check out how religious they are and, <laughs> and how spiritually minded they are, except when there's a big storm, then everybody gets religious out on the ocean. But they were, they were just like the least expected people. And so that's where it is. And this week, we're going to get his introduction to what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. 
And it's his initial shocking, thought-provoking, upside-down message that he's going to give to them. And it's found in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. 5 to 7 are what's called the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to look at the prologue. But I'll tell you this much. These 12 verses are what were the foundation of everything else that Jesus taught. And if you broke them down one by one, you could go through this for weeks. In fact, we did that a year ago. We went through essentially the Beatitudes for weeks. And this is going to be just one Sunday at it. And I hope that you'll just kind of hang on because it's going to feel like we're going kind of fast. But Matthew chapter 5, it's the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes means that this is really about our attitude and it's about being. It is about being much less than doing. And that's what Jesus' message is going to be. So in Matthew chapter 5, here's a quick overview, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. It's because what does it mean to be blessed? Well, it means to be for God to bless us. Then we need to be righteous. So how do we get to be righteous? What are the attitudes that lead to that? And then he says, okay, there's going to be righteous influence. That means that we're salt and light, that because we change, because God makes us a new being, then we can have a different influence, salt and light. And then he talks about righteous law-keeping. What does it look like? And, and there, that was where he said, okay, you've heard it said this way, but I say to you. And this is where he turned their life upside down, but it all starts because of how he turned their, their understanding of the, what does it mean to be blessed? So let me ask you, when you came in the door this morning, did you feel blessed? And what makes you feel blessed? When you woke up this morning and looked at the mirror, did you go like, whoa, I'm blessed. Now, I looked in the mirror and I said, oh man, that eye looks bloodshot. What's going on? You know, there's a lot of ways that you say to yourself you're blessed. You know, maybe, maybe this week you're really feeling blessed because somebody you know had a new baby. Maybe you're feeling blessed today because, wow, there was a Christmas bonus and, and that was good. Or maybe you got promoted or there's something else happening that you consider to be a happy happenstance in your life. And there, there's a whole list of those. Or maybe you've been prevented. Maybe you got some good news about some medical testing that something's benign that you were worried about wouldn't be benign. Or someone else in, that's close to you, that's the circumstance. So there's a lot of things that make us feel blessed. But are those the ones that Jesus is going to talk about? Because often what we think about as being blessed has all to do with our circumstances and nothing to do with our relationship with God and our relationship with others as a result of our relationship with God. And that's where he's going to go. He's going to take our sense of blessedness beyond circumstances. Now, it's nice to sing the song that we just sang, you know, that everything's conquered and all, all things are good, but I think what we're going to find is that that's kind of what Jesus uh, people, the Israelites, were expecting him to say and to do. He's going to be the great conqueror. He's going to remove all of our fear and all of our pain, and he's going to provide for us all these blessings and pleasures and abundance. And Jesus is going to turn that expectation upside down. He's going to, he's going to toss them a football when they were expecting the old kind of football. So what makes you feel blessed? Ask yourself the question right now. There's room on there. 
write some things down before the end of the day and say, what has been making me feel blessed or not blessed? And does it fit with what Jesus is going to say about blessing? So we're going to jump in here now to the passage. We'll kind of walk our way through it, and then we'll just kind of summarize it into some categories. So notice, first of all, the setting of this, and always take note of the setting when you're studying the Scripture. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, so people are gathering, people are coming to him, and they're wanting to know things, and he says, well, I guess instead of just doing this one-on-one at a time, let's gather them up, okay? So he went up on a mountainside, and if you go now to the Sea of Galilee, they're just outside of Capernaum. There's a hill that they think is probably the one. And it's not that big of an area, so it probably was the one. And, and I think uh, one of the things that Matthew looked back and thought about was, hey, you know, this is like a new Moses. You know, this whole new plan thing? Because where did Moses get the information from God? From the mountain. And so I, I think that's part of why he put that in there. And then he goes up and he sits down. Well, sitting down means that you're in authority. The person who sat down back in those days uh, would be the person who was in authority. And the students or teachers or disciples, all uh, that word means the same three things, they would all kind of stand around and listen to the one who was seated. Kind of the opposite of what happens in our classrooms, right? Like you're all sitting down and I'm up here teaching. And that, that ultimately, it was the other way around back then. He sat down, his disciples, learners, Students came to him. Now, these aren't all believers yet. You'll find out that as you go through the Gospels, people are followers and learners and students before they believe. And that might be true of people who come to church. They might not yet believe. They They might think that, hey, there might be something valuable that can come out of being religious. You know, maybe there's some moral things that would help me live my life better. And they'll check out church. But, and they may be learning. They may be actually kind of being a disciple and yet not yet believing about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So the disciples came to him. He began to teach them. And now he said this. And these are going to turn things upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor, meaning that these people understand their spiritual poverty. It's a person who looks at God and realizes you are so holy that there is nothing in me or nothing that I can do that makes me worthy of being in your perfect presence. I am unworthy of this. That is a person who is blessed. Now this is really upside down because the people who were the leaders of religious life in Israel at the time were spiritually very proud And they were basically, in essence, telling God, I'm doing you a favor by letting my gifts and talents and authority and power and prestige and influence be used for your kingdom, God. You're lucky to have me. Very opposite. That kind of person, it says, is not going to be the kingdom of heaven kind of person. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And these two are connected. This is a realization of intellect. It's understanding the fact about who I am in relationship to God. This one is the emotional response to that fact. See, when it says here mourn, it's not just talking about when someone dies, then you're mourning, then you're blessed. No, that's not what this is saying at all. These are connected. And what this is truly saying is that I recognize 
that I, I just regret about what my life is compared to what God would want me to be. It's the emotional recognition of the fact of the first beatitude. And then it says, because of that, you'll be comforted. Why? Because the consequences of all of that are taken care of in our relationship with God because of his grace. And then, you know, if you take the opposite of these, it would be spiritual pride, and this would be kind of strutting your stuff. The opposite of mourning would be strutting your stuff and saying, hey, I don't have anything to regret between me and God. Number five, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is someone who's gentle, someone who is not forcing their way, someone who does not kind of exert all their influence and seek power and to seek control. This is a person who lets God be the sovereign one and allows God to determine things and follows God's leading in that. It is submissiveness to God's authority. Man, these, are these contrary to our normal thinking? When, when our normal nature, I mean, if you think about all three of those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And basically at the time, the Israelites and the leaders and all their people would have been thinking the same thing that we think in our culture. And that is, blessed are the forceful. They're going to get it all. But what they're going to get is all going to be here. And they're going to expend it. They won't inherit it. They'll just spend it out. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. What would be an opposite of that that was characteristic that Jesus is going to confront? Blessed are those who find the loopholes in the law so they can do what they want. That would be the opposite. And that's exactly what was happening within the religious teachings and leadership of the time. And he's going to confront that. And he says, for they will be filled. And the reality is, for those who look for the loopholes, they're going to be empty. Because the filling comes from righteousness, from alignment with the goodness and the glory and the purity and the holiness of God. And the more that our life is aligned with that, the more that we experience this filling that only God can provide. And he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What's the opposite? Those who are retaliatory. Blessed are the retaliatory would have been the way that they would have said it. Those who get even. Those who win in the conflicts of life that we have with one another. And this says, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are those who retaliate, for they will experience their own retaliation. Opposites. Opposites. Think of the opposites. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart. Those, again, who look at God and say, God, I want this experience in my life. Because when you are pure, you can see God. You get to be in heaven with God. Can we be pure on our own? The first one said we're poor in spirit because we recognize that we can't be that on our own. But those who trust in Jesus, and he's going to explain this to them as time goes on in this, that being pure in heart is not something you do on your own. It's something that God provides to you by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. But he also says that that ought to be permeating us because he's talking about learners, not just people who he wants to bring into the faith, but those who are already faithful 
Those who have already put their faith in Christ, this ought to be characteristic of us, and it's not easy because there's part of us that kind of want to enjoy, and again, who are looking for the loopholes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. There's something in us human beings that wants to be dividers. There's something in us human beings that wants to kind of add fuel to the fire sometimes. And he's saying that peacemaking, that bringing people together in unity, finding the common things that can bring us to God, that God really wants us to be unified in our love for him and our love for one another. And then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what's interesting? We kind of want the opposite. Don't, don't we try to avoid, don't we consider it a blessing if, that we are not persecuted? I mean, sometimes we pray and we thank God. Thank you, God, that we are not persecuted like some of the other countries. But some of you have read this book, The Insanity of God, that we talked about and we did a study about it. And the reality is that the people in the countries where their persecution is systemic, where their persecution is overwhelming, where it includes, in some cases, martyrdom, they consider themselves blessed to suffer for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're valuing above their circumstances of pleasure and protection and safety and freedom from fear. And then he kind of adds to that, blessed are you, and he's pointing to them as disciples in their generation, but it applies to ours as well. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. And that was going to happen to those disciples, the ones who chose to stay with him. Many of those who heard this the first time probably said, okay, I'm good with that. I think I'll go find another rabbi. This is just way too different. I'll, I'll go back to my ball. I don't, I don't want that other one that kind of rolls funny. They say, because of me. They were persecuted in that generation. They were martyred in that generation. People have been martyred through the centuries in between. And even now in our world today, people are being persecuted and insulted because of me. And maybe you've heard some comments because of standards in your life, because of beliefs in your life, because you actually spend time in a building on Sunday morning like this, where people might say, what are you wasting your time there for? What's up with that? I didn't know you were one of those Bible thumpers. I didn't know you were one of them born-agains. You'll hear comments like that. And it's okay, because it happened in the first century. It happened in the centuries in between. It's happening in this century and other places. And Jesus basically says, that's a blessing. That means that somehow your character is so associated because of him. Not because we're obnoxious, not because we're getting in people's face and making them feel judged, but because we are committed to Jesus Christ. And if people oppose Jesus, they will oppose you. And what's the result? He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And that's the transcendent phrase in this whole thing. Rejoice and be glad. Blessing is yours because great is your reward in heaven. But you know something? Because our culture is so wealthy, 
because we have so many conveniences, because this earth looks so good and provides so many pleasures that we forget that this is this long and eternity is on out there forever. And we just can't wrap around our, our heads around the fact that these rewards that are here are extremely temporary. And these last forever. And then he says, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that's the verses. Let's just kind of bring them together and then we'll sum it up. First of all, if we know what real blessing is, real blessing flows from humble self-awareness. So I would encourage you to take some time and ask yourself, where do I stand before God? If God is perfect and holy and heaven is a perfect holy place, do I belong? And if I say to myself, and there's, there was this guy who was uh, taught a thing called evangelism explosion. His name was D. James Kennedy. Some of you with grayer hair than me and some of you with hair like mine, uh, you remember a guy named D. James Kennedy who used to be on TV. And he started a thing called evangelism explosion. And he had this thing that they called the Kennedy question that he would initiate a, con a conversation with someone about spiritual things. And he'd say, if you were to die right now and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Penetrating question. Think about it for a moment. Right where you are right now. What would you say? Well, I went to church last week. I helped someone at the store. I opened the door for them and let them go into the store ahead of me. In fact, I let somebody with less stuff than me go through the line in front of me. Um, I was nice to my sibling once 20 years ago. And we start accumulating our own righteousness. But that's not poor in spirit. If we're poor in spirit, we say, God, there is absolutely no reason you should let me into heaven in a perfect place, into your perfect presence. But you said, that if I trusted in your son who gave his life for me on the cross, poured out his blood in the place of my life, that somehow you'd give me his righteousness and you would take away my sin. And that's what I'm trusting. That's the self-awareness that we need to have. That's what poor in spirit means. And when we, instead of looking at our sin and longing to get back to something that we want to do, that we see as better than the purity of what God does or doesn't want us to do, that I literally mourn over that, that I understand how my brokenness offends the perfection and the holiness and the love of God that's been given and the meekness to, to let God be the one who's forceful and, and to be gentle and to be a merciful person instead of being that person who retaliates and lives in bitterness. See, that flows from being aware of who I am before God. And it's an awareness of who I am before other people. Because then it seeks also the upright and the pure path. Instead of having these things that we want to find loopholes so we can keep 
keep feeding things of pleasure and feeding things that are out of the boundaries of what God caused to be described as out of bounds and in bounds, when we look at those, sometimes, if we're not looking at it in the way that Jesus is teaching them to look at it, we look at those as things to kind of secretly find ways to. Those loopholes. And he's saying that you hunger and thirst for righteousness and pure in heart, wanting to take the things out of our affections. Your heart is your affections. To remove the things, the affections, that would pull me away from God. Instead, embrace the things that would draw me toward God. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Wanting to eradicate the things in my life to put those to death so that I can live to God. And then it stems. When we're blessed, it's going, to, it's going to show itself in receiving and giving of grace. When we recognize how desperately we need God's grace, it should, even though sometimes it doesn't, we have to all admit that, right? That we start thinking that maybe I'm kind of righteous on my own. And then kind of somebody else does something that's not favorable to me, and I can like, just like, remember there was a guy, this unjust servant, it's in the same gospel, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 18, there's this guy who says, look, uh, he, he goes to his master and says, I need your forgiveness, he has this massive debt, he gets forgiven, and then he goes out and he hounds somebody and has them thrown in jail for a pittance. And after he tells that story, Peter says to Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive? Seven times? See, the original was three, he added another three, and then he put one on to make it the perfect number seven, he says, seven times? What did Jesus say? Most of you know this. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. That the kind of forgiveness here is to recognize that because we're spiritually impoverished, and God has to go 70 times seven times seven times seven times seven with us, then we ought to be seeking to go 70 times 7 with one another. And when we do, that's when we, as peacemakers, it says they will be called the children of God. You will be so different from the normal way of living. You know, you you will be bringing this other ball in there, and everybody's going to be asking, where's that coming from? Where's that forgiveness coming from? Where is that desire not to condemn, not to live in bitterness? Where's that coming from? And, and they're going to have to say, got to be coming from somewhere beyond our normal human ability. That's how we get recognized as children of God. And then it out endures hostility and persecution. And that's where he's talking about that, that whole idea of how when you, when you feel persecution for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the time to remember. It's the time to focus on the fact that I know that whatever suffering, whatever persecution, whatever insult that I take, if it's not something I generated on my own and it's connected to my relationship with Jesus and it's really persecution of Jesus, then I can feel blessed. And this blessing will, will out-endure the sense of shame or any sense of, of uh, 
you know, the, the person's wronging me or anything like that. Why? Because I know that God never wastes any of that for us. So kind of summing this up a little bit, blessedness really is about our being, and it's being deeply connected with God, finding our identity in him. We're having a, a baptism in not too many weeks, and baptism is the, the physical outward statement to our culture, to our friends, to our family, to our body of believers. I am identifying with God, with Jesus Christ who died for me. And my, our, when our identity is deeply connected with God, it will transcend circumstances. As long as I'm thinking about how can I earn this, how can I merit it, how can I make myself look good before God, there's only one way to look good before God, and that is to humbly admit that I'm not good before God. So let me ask you the question. Are you feeling blessed this morning? I hope you are. But I also hope that we let the mirror of this passage look deeply into our hearts about who we are before God and who we are before others and let that sense of deep connection with God permeate not only our relationship with him but our relationship with others so that people would see you as a peacemaker. People would see you as one who is not forceful, one who lets God be the ruler, and one who just radiates the presence of God's grace and mercy to other people. And the first step in that, obviously, is to trust in Jesus, to recognize that we're broken people, and we, we can't fix all this about ourselves. Only God can do that. Only the transforming power of the Spirit indwelling you, filling you, growing you over time will overcome the natural thing. Our natural bent. Jesus turned all that upside down. And for the rest of this Gospel of Matthew, you're going to see all of, all of what happens is going to be reaction to this teaching that he does in the next two chapters, this chapter and the next two. Because this is where he's confronting them, where they have missed it, and where they spiritually need to hear him, respond to him, and believe in him. And that's where we are as well. And not just that first time for trusting in Jesus, but on a day-to-day -day basis. Saying, God, make me pure in heart. Help me to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help me to grieve the ways that you have been grieved with me. Help me to be that peacemaker and to represent you well. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, thank you so much for rescuing us when we were helpless to do anything that would be spiritually fruitful for eternity. And somehow you came up with this plan that would put the penalty for our sin on Jesus, a perfect substitute who was willing to be sacrificed for us and who came and lived this life the way that it ought to be lived so that we can not only trust him, but we can look back and see the examples of his life interacting with people who were hostile to him, people who were confused, people who just didn't seem to get it, and yet he just continued to walk with a peace 
and with a power of person that we just can't imagine. So God, thank you for not only his sacrifice, but his example. And we aspire, God, before you to pursue blessing that's eternal. Blessing that comes from who you are, not from what we think we can do. And who you are trying to help us become. We pray it in Jesus' name.